Are you looking for the wisest investment? If so, tune in this week as my guest, Robin Tobe, and I talk about raising money smart kids and seeing Bruce Springsteen live. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F word. Hello, welcome back to the most hated F word podcast. Last week, I did not release an episode. It was the first time I haven't released an episode in 2021 on a weekly basis, and that's because I was gone. I was in poor reception, and we were camping as our family enjoyed the incredibly beautiful mountains here in Alberta, Canada. It was fantastic. We did some hikes, did some swimming, had a lot of good fun. But unfortunately, I wasn't able to release an episode. But here it is, a day late, because we just got back. Nonetheless, this week, my guest is Robin Tobe. Before I get into Robin and her bio, if you are enjoying the podcast, I would love if you could head over to Apple Podcast and leave a review. It really means a lot to me, so thank you in advance. So who is Robin? Well, I'll get into her bio during the interview, but she's a CPA professional speaker and a financial consultant. Today, we talk about her new book, The Wisest Investment teaching your kids to be responsible, independent, and money smart for life. I appreciate Robin's focus and dedication to helping parents teach their kids about money because we know this idea of money is normally taboo and we just don't talk about it. So Robin's book is really practical and serves as a wonderful guide to giving parents suggestions based on the child's age. So in the book, there's different ages and suggestions that are age-appropriate. So it's great. What are people saying about this book? Well, David Chilton, one of the biggest personal finance authors in Canada, author of The Wealthy Barber, a treasure chest of great ideas presented in short, punchy chapters. Another highly regarded individual in the personal finance space is Rob Carrick, and he says, my new go-to resource on this topic is Robin's book, The Wise's Investment. So it's got great reviews. I highly recommend it. And we even talk about how Bruce Springsteen and seeing him live could be one of the greatest investments next to teaching our kids about money. So sit back, grab a coffee, and enjoy this conversation about the wisest investment. Welcome back to the Most Hated F Word podcast. Today, my guest is Robin Tobe. So who is Robin? If you don't know, she is a chartered professional accountant by training. Robin began her career with KPMG and then transitioned into real estate and landed in the very complex world of derivatives. Even that word sounds complicated. But today, (laughs) she's a personal finance speaker and the author of The Wisest Investment, an update of the best-selling A Parent's Guide to Raising Money Smart Kids. Robin lives in Toronto, Canada, where she and her husband have raised two mostly money-smart young children. For fun, she loves to snowboard, cycle, and pre-COVID, go to concert. She even got backstage and met Bruce Springsteen. Robin, welcome to the show, but I've been dying to ask you, how the hell did you meet Bruce Springsteen backstage? It was such a thrill. Sorry, I got three Springsteen books right here. I read his autobiography too. It's such a great book. So one of my really close friends, Sherry Siskin, and I love going to concerts. And her cousin is a producer in Hollywood, married to a well-known actor who's friends with Springsteen. Wow. Yeah. So we, when we went to the show, we were able to get backstage and we went into his dressing room, like honestly, 20 minutes before the show started. I was like, don't you need to be doing your vocal warmers or something? Like you have time to talk to us. So it was me and I think there was four other women. And then we went into his wife, Patty Scalfa's dressing room too, while she was getting her hair and makeup done. And it was so amazing. It was just a great experience. He gave us a hug. He was so friendly and nice. He's such a great guy. I really admire him. Oh, that is so cool. I'm a big, big Springsteen fan. 
So did you guys talk to him? Yeah, like we did talk to him and I had, I had like my son's guitar strap and a Sharpie on me and I wanted to get his autograph. Yeah, we totally talked to him, but I just, I felt so weird because it was so close to showtime and I just didn't want to like totally distract or be weird about it. So I don't even think we got any pictures. It was, it was all quite fast. I think we had a handler like bring us in as a group and then come back out, you know, and then there was the next group that was coming in. Like, I remember I saw the guys from Blue Rodeo in the at backstage. Like it was like all Canadian music royalty was back there. Um, my friend Sherry has met him a few times. Like she's gotten backstage several times because of the cousin actor connection. Wow. Did he just like exhibit this magical, mystical feeling around him? <laughs> Like he was very Bruce, like what you'd expect. Like he's not a big guy, but you know, he's in good shape. He has that kind of distinctive voice. Like you've heard him speak. Obviously I've listened to his audio, the audio book of his. Yeah. It was everything I dreamed it would be. It was, thank God it was. Are you a Springsteen fan or you went to that concert and then met him? Oh yeah. Oh my God. Totally. Like I can't even count how many times oh. I went to the Broadway show on yeah. my birthday a few years ago. I have been listening to him since I was in high school. And I mean, we've gone to Toronto Film Festival. He's premiered some of his movies there, like Darkness. I think there was one called Darkness or The Promise or anyways, we went, we go to those. We've seen him there. Like my husband loves him. Like it's just one of these things that he grew up at a certain time. He was so popular. And I just find it's like one of those things like Springsteen people find each other. I got chills. I'm I'm serious. <laughs> Me and my brothers went to the Springsteen Broadway. Oh, you did? Yeah, 2019. Uh, 2020 just has messed up with my time. Whenever it was, <laughs> we went in November. Yeah, oh yeah, it was so good. So good. So good. Just so intimate and just that theater is so amazing and his storytelling, ah, so good. Well, this is a really hard question, but at the present time, if I asked you this question, because there's probably multiple, what would be a favorite Springsteen song? I like the first few albums a lot that are like less well-known before Born to Run, like Greetings from Asbury Park, the first one, and The Wild, mm. The Innocent. I really like the song Growing Up, which is from Greetings, mm. and I think he kicks the show off with that. I mm. like some of the songs from Tunnel of Love. That album was not as popular. I love Brilliant Disguise, One Step Up and Two Steps Back. Like, And, you know, I love Born Trump, but I like the acoustic version that he performed in the show. Yeah, it, it was, was so, so good. good. So, yeah. What about you? What are your favorites? You know, it's always hard. I try not to always go to Born to Run. <laughs> but, like, the essence of that song, though, of just, like, it reminds me of a lot of what I like in my life. It was just, like, I don't know, a young, relentless pursuit to hit the road and live life to its fullest always i don't know it always captivates me but rosalita is a song that i i always yeah. enjoy and i can't remember what there was a dvd that came with the born to run box that has i think he's in arizona and this was the first video i saw of that one of rosalita him playing it and he's just like going from big speaker to the next speaker dancing and like i think like three girls come out of the stage and he like falls down and they like this is him. He gets up. He's like, "Whoa!" Yeah. And I was like, "Wow, that song is energetic." And so I don't know. I like so many. I've recently my four year or five year old now. I've been playing just the album around home all the time, and he's been grooving to Tenth Avenue. So we've been listening to that a lot, and now it just reminds me of him because he loves when it says like Scooter and the Big Man are going to bust the city in half, and he sings oh, that's it, so and it's just so great. It's so hard to pick because I also love the album. Um, I love the song The Rising and Lonesome Day, like his post 9-11 album. I love. Do you know, I promise you when you said I also love, I'm like, she's going to say The Rising. Somehow, I, I swear. Sorry, I cut you off, but I swear I was thinking that. And I love the song Atlantic City because that's a strange album, Nebraska, like not as popular, but seeing him live with the E Street Band and he goes for so long and he gives it his all. Like if you do any kind of performing and as a keynote speaker, I like to think I perform. He is the ultimate performer. He is the consummate pro. He is just so amazing. That band is, it's a religious experience. Like I can't think of anything more exciting than going to a Springsteen show. And the Broadway show was amazing, but it's a different experience i feel like we could have a whole just episode about springsteen but <laughs> i do too but i i agree on the performance part it's phenomenal it's like something you never experienced i kept telling my wife about we gotta come you gotta come and 
the last time he played at New Orleans Jazz Fest, my entire family went down, my parents and brothers and my wife. And we waited seven hours to get like right where the dividers from the VIP, we were in VIP, we were in the section part. We waited eight hours in the heat just to see him. And it was just an experience like no other. And he's saying like the saints, because we're down in New Orleans, uh, Dr. John came out with him. Hard to be a saint in the city, that one? No, the saints go marching. Yeah, and it was just like, and he had a big, big like brass band and like choir. It was just like so amazing. And then waiting on a sunny day, he was like dancing on the little ledge right in front of us. And he pulled up a kid, like two people beside me just come up and sing the verse with him. So, But you think he was born that way, but when you read his book and if you've studied the craft of performance, you do realize that there is a lot of craft there. He just makes it look so spontaneous and so natural. And that's why he is the consummate performer. But yeah, I encourage, and like, if you have the opportunity to see a Springsteen show, and if you can get in the pit, like right in the front, which I've been lucky enough to do a few times, whew, so great. Do you have a most memorable concert? Well, you remember he did the, the River Tour? That was probably the last live show other than the Broadway that I saw. And I love when an artist plays their whole album, like track by track. I think that's a really cool experience. I love that one. We saw him in Hamilton, Ontario as well. I don't remember what tour that was, but they are all amazing. But the river one sticks in my mind. That was amazing. When he always tells a story about his sister, when he sings the river, the actual song, the river, it always just, I don't know. And it just, you're right. And that one line in it is a dream a lie if It don't come true or something worse. I always think of that. Yeah. His lyrics, they're very, yeah. Okay. So on our podcast, the theme is the intersection of our minds or money and what matters most. And I use stories, like our guest stories, as a tool or medium to explore this idea of our money, our mind, and what matters most. Because if we look at like our stories, they're the internal narrative we create to ourselves and tell ourselves daily on repeat, which really creates the reality of our money stories. That being said, your story involves Bruce Springsteen to some degree. You have kids. This is an odd question that I've never asked, but how, if any, has Bruce Springsteen impacted your perspective or your money story? Well, in the way that I just mentioned, so, you know, when he, the show started, it was so hard to get a ticket and it was so expensive, but I really wanted to see it. And I sort of tied it to a special occasion to justify spending the money just because it was, you know, I had to get to New York, I had to get, anyways, it was one of those things, like, I do treat myself for certain things, but this was really a lot. But again, it was really in line with my values, because I value going to concerts. It's something um, my husband and I love to do. We've taken our kids since they were little, like, I think the first show I ever took them to was Avril Lavigne in Toronto. And, you know, been doing that with them ever since. My son is a musician, and just, it's a hugely important thing. So again, when you spend money in line with your values, that feels right. It makes it meaningful when your goals and your financial priorities are tied to their values. So I feel like the Springsteen show is a good manifestation of that. And again, I feel like he's also just taught me about aiming high, setting the bar high, giving it your all. And I feel like those are things I really tried to pass on to my kids, like just life lessons as well as money lessons. He also seems like a fairly down-to-earth superstar, if there is such a thing. He just seems to still be grounded and keep his own values in mind. You can kind of tell what he cares about. One of my kids did see the show because he's a musician. My daughter hasn't seen it. But it was like we wanted them to have that experience too, to see like an amazing piece of art. Because we are, you know, art is really important to us museums, cultures, that's something that as a family, we've always spent money on and value because it really broadens your horizons. And those are some of the ways that Springsteen has influenced our family's finances. Oh, thanks for sharing that. And I I would have to say that the concert then with your son, the musician, how often do you guys talk and reminisce and put yourselves back into that position? Oh, a lot. I mean, I've seen a lot of shows with him. We were just talking about seeing Brian Wilson when he was in Toronto. My son, Justin, saw him twice on that tour, he reminded me, because he is really into Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys. But just so many shows like that, where it was so important in many ways to experience that and experience it together. Oh, another thing, my husband once paid 
to send Justin to like the front row for Rush because he's a huge Rush fan. And to experience that with like that community of people that, and again, those are musicians and Canadians I really admire. So there are so many good experiences like that. I really miss concerts. I realized over COVID and we did a lot of, we kept seeing things, live streams and different things that we would support and buy tickets for, but it's, you're missing something of that live energy. Yeah. It's hard to give that feeling of that collective effervescence and like you can't feel that over the, the screen. You really remind me of a book called Happy Money by Elizabeth Dunn, where she talks about the five key areas to spend happy money. And one of them is experiences. And you talk about values in your book. And we're going to specifically get in your book, but I just want to continue on this. How have you guys as a family in alignment with your kids? Because it sounds like your kids, well, your son for sure is a musician, enjoy music. How, if at all, have you guys been able to identify what your real values are, such as music and art, and then shared that as a family union? Being aware of your values sometimes takes a little bit of discovery. So I actually took this co-active coaching training program maybe 15 years ago. And one of the first things we did was a values discovery exercise. And it really stuck with me. And when I was writing the book, I thought, I think this book needs to have some practical resources and I want to help families, parents and kids discover what their values are. So I created this tool called the Values Validator, which is a series of questions to help you tease out your top five values. Now, when you do it, you might be very aware of what your values are. It might just confirm what you already know, but you might also discover things that you knew subconsciously, but that wasn't top of mind. And I think the whole idea is to keep it top of mind. I mean, in our family, education was always a value, a strong value. Like my grandparents, three out of four, immigrated from Eastern Europe. And my parents, you know, they went to university and we went to university and my kids too. So education and, and higher education was always an important value. Security, like having financial security, being responsible with money, because again, they were immigrants, they worked really hard, they built wealth when they came to Canada. And I think those values really seep in. With values, some of it happens by osmosis and it seeps in, but some of it is really more of a discussion and being vocal with your kids about what's important to you, what you value as a family. So my kids knew we valued education and we had RESPs for them to go to university and they both did. Those types of things, adventure, my husband loves travel, loves it, loves it. So that was always something that he really wanted to do with our kids when they were young and they really got to see the world. So I think that your kids know by what you talk about, how you spend your time and money says so much about your values, right? So they can sense it and you're also modeling it with your behavior. You know, I think that's such a key statement there. How you spend your time and money says so much about your values. Often we might have these aspirational views on here's what my value should be, but we're not congruent in how we're spending our time and money. And I think children could get mixed messages. We're saying one thing, but we're doing another. So it just when I hear you talk about your values and especially the Springsteen part, you just light right up. And I could see that. I could feel that you guys really have these strong sense of values. And I think that's wonderful to share it as a family unit. You mentioned about your family. When you grew up, what was your family's money story or meaning around money? Well, as I said, both of my parents, three out of four grandparents, came from Eastern Europe with literally nothing and had to make a go of it in Canada. I had one grandmother that was born in Brantford, Ontario, the hometown of Wayne Gretzky. That's pretty unusual for my culture. And my parents were born in the 30s. And in some ways they were, I would say a product of like a bit of a depression era mentality, especially my father is a little older than my mother. So I feel like being frugal and being careful and not being extravagant and being responsible and maybe being aware that their parents came with nothing and had to really work hard to build wealth in this country had a big, big impression on them. And then I really feel responsibility for that as well. Because, you know, it's just so hard to start over to escape persecution and start a new life in Canada and build wealth. I mean, we all know how hard it is to build wealth. But when you come here, you don't even speak the language. It's not your first language and all that stuff. So I think it made an impression on my parents. 
They both were professionals. My father was a lawyer. My mother was a teacher. They were always very responsible when it came to financial stuff. So I feel like that seeped in, as I said earlier, and my brother and I are are both very responsible, I would say, with money. It sounds like you're proud of your family's history. Yeah, I am. Like, you know, the more I think about what my grandparents had to go through to come here, and I've found out more and more things over the years, like it's just, I feel so lucky that they did that, that they came here and that we are now able to build such a comfortable, prosperous life. I'm able to do this kind of work and help other parents. Yeah, I'm really grateful for that. Yeah, certainly when we look back at what the the generations before us did, it really helps us see how they're just building for the next generation. When we look at money stories, we look at our parents and grandparents. They develop these perspectives or almost truths that are generally speaking 100% accurate at that time. So an example might be during the depression, people might not trust the banks, but they might then hold on to that perspective because that was their truth at the time. And then we adopt some of those beliefs that are no longer truth. How have you, if at all, been able to take some financial wisdom or lessons learned from your family and then adapted it, give to your kids as the economy and as the world has changed a lot since the 30s? Yeah, that's interesting. I never sensed that they didn't trust like the institutions or the banks in Canada. I never got that sense. Although you hear these stories, people fled Europe and they were like literally sewing diamonds into their clothing, into the hems of their clothing and stuff like that, or swallowing things. But I think on both sides, my grandparents built businesses and they also invested in real estate. And I think there was a sense that investing in real estate was very permanent and tangible And to this day, that's something I feel comfortable investing in as well. So I feel like that has passed down. I'm sure they would be shocked at how the world has changed and how digital it's become. You know, we hardly use cash anymore. So I try to adapt with the times. And my kids obviously are very, you know, they're digital native. So they're really great with all that stuff. And just trying to stay on top of the world of investing and the world of real estate and everything like that. And and it takes a lot of self-education. And, you know, that's something that I also value, as I had said before. So I still take investing courses. I spend a lot of time listening to podcasts about especially things that are newer, like cryptocurrencies and things like that and real estate, just to stay on top of what some of the top issues are. So I feel like my kids do that too. My son just took, we both took this value investing and option trading workshop this year. We talk about that stuff. My daughter is kind of like followed in my footsteps a little bit and she became a CPA just recently, but she's now doing her CFA. So as you know, you're a financial professional too. That's a lot more in depth on the investing side. So they continue to learn and I love to see that. And I love to learn from them too, because I don't pretend to know everything and they, they can teach me a lot and they do. Yeah, that's, it sounds like they're following your steps in that lifelong learning, but yeah, I like your comment on learning from them as well. For sure. I feel like, as you know, like there's this whole thing now with retail investors and it's a lot of young people and the whole meme stock and I like having those kinds of conversations with them. My son and I have talked about that a lot because look, he was into Reddit for ages And I'm really not on those boards like he is. So it's really an interesting perspective. Uh, And then even we took the same course and he filtered it through his perspective. And it's really great to have that intergenerational sharing of ideas. For sure. That open mindset. I mean, if we all had that, we'd all learn a lot more and better ourselves and others. So let's go specifically into the book. And, you know, I I have to make a comment. Part of my story and my life story around money was when I was younger, my dad gave me a blank check and a unicycle. Or first it was a book. So he said, here's a blank check. Here's a book, which was David Chilton's The Wealthy Barber. He's like, if you learn or if you read this, I'll sign the check. I I said unicycle because the next one was unicycle and, and another book. Anyhow, so David Chilton played a big part of my money story, and he wrote a great quote about your book, which is a treasure chest of great ideas presented in short, punchy chapters. Excellent. So well done, because David Chilton has an impact on many Canadians. So let's go into your book, The Wisest Investment, Teaching Your Kids to Be Responsible, Independent, and Money Smart for Life. My first question is, why did you pick that title, The Wisest Investment? 
Well, it's an update to the original book, which was A Parent's Guide to Raising Money Smart Kids, which was a mouthful. And I didn't have a lot of choice over that title as I would have liked because I had a publisher at the time. So when it came time to do the update, I was like, okay, I really need a great title. I knew this because speaking of David Chilton, I took his nonfiction book marketing course. Him and his son, Scott Chilton, created this course called The Chilton Method of nonfiction book creation and marketing. And one of the things he says over and over is you need a great title and subtitle and cover because you really can judge a book by its cover in a lot of cases, right? So I actually hired someone to even help me brainstorm title ideas, someone he actually recommended in the course. And I had a, a few and I was down to like, I think I had a short list and I sent Dave an email and I was like, what do you think? And he called me back and he was like, I have an even better idea. The wisest investment. He likes article, adjective, noun. So the wealthy barber, the wisest investment. There's something, I'm just looking at my shelf if I have others that are like that. But the rich life, I'm just seeing. Anyway, and I was like, oh my God, that is perfect because I really feel that way. It really tapped into my philosophy. And then the subtitle was a little bit easier because I knew, and it was echoing the original title about raising, you know, money smart kids. But I thought, well, what do I really want them to be? Responsible, independent, money smart for life. So that's how it came about. That's great. Wow. What a, I guess, an honor to be able to work with David Chilton. Oh, I'm so lucky. It's been amazing. And he's been incredibly supportive. And nobody knows the book business, especially in Canada, better than he does. So if there's any authors out there, I really recommend that course. It's fantastic. Okay. We'll find it on the internet and put a link. So in the book, you talk about a method where you bring in what you call the five pillars of money. Why don't you explain what the five pillars of money are and the significance of why you chose these five? So the five pillars are earn, save, spend, share, and invest. When I was trying to figure out a structure for the book and for helping parents, it occurred to me that really any topic falls under one of those five pillars. And then I was joking around that I probably also got the idea subliminally from this multi-slotted piggy bank. Oh, wow. It is multi-slot. Yeah. Save, spend, donate, and invest. Where did you get that? It's from a company called Money Savvy Generation. And you can buy it online on, on Mastermind in Canada, probably Amazon. It just made sense to me that any topic could, or, you know, anything that you needed to know about money really fit under those five topics. So then when I created the outline for the book, I was like, okay, I I know I need to focus the information on a certain age group or stage. It has to be age appropriate or it's just going to go over their head. So I just started filling in the book as I was writing it. Like, what do you need to know when you're at that age and stage under each of those five pillars? And I did research and I knew from my own kids and I talked to other parents. So it was like a whole bunch of different sources of info. And I felt like, okay, well, if I'm a parent and I don't really know, I don't feel like I have the information to teach my kids, how will I know what to talk about when they're preteens? If something comes up about spending or saving, and that's just how I approach the book. And it's so, it's so practical. You can just look at the chapter for the age your kids are at, or you could look ahead, or you can just focus on what they need to know right now, what's really relevant to their lives. So for people who don't have the book in their hand, is the first age five to nine Five to eight, nine to 12. So young kids, preteens, teens, and then young adults. So four different distinct stages. So a chapter for each of those. The first chapter is really more for parents to help them get their own financial house in order. It sets the stage so that they can lead by example and be good role models. But then each chapter is for a kid's age and stage. And they are short. And the sections of, you know, again, each of the five pillars is a section in the chapter they're short too. So you can kind of just see specifically, oh, she's talking about credit cards. Oh, she's talking about allowance. Oh, she's talking about savings account, charity. So it's really easy to zoom in on maybe there's something that's cropped up in your daily lives, what I call teachable moment. And you want to make sure that you're getting it right, that you're conveying the right info. So you can just look it up and say, oh, okay. It's kind of important that they learn about this right now. Yeah. Again, you make it very clear on those sections and within each section. So each age category goes through the five pillars, which I think is neat and you make it age appropriate. So I really think it's 
a good way, the way you set it up. And I want to specifically go to the first section. So I'm just looking at your book right now. I often hear parents talk about, well, you know, I never learned about money. I, I learned dysfunctional behaviors from my childhood. Who am I to teach my kids about money? The fact that they don't really feel adequately equipped with the personal finance knowledge to teach their kids about money. And I felt like you did a really good job in your book to address this. So what would you say to the parents who say, you know what, Robin, I, I think it's very aspirational to teach my kids about money, but I, I don't have any knowledge myself. What would you say to that person? I feel them. I understand that they feel that way and that it is intimidating and overwhelming and hard to teach your kids if you feel like you're not good at this yourself or feeling like you don't have the time or the knowledge. So what I say to parents are there's a few different strategies that you can use. The first is try to approach this with a learning mindset, a growth mindset. This is something you and your kids can learn together. So you don't have to know everything. You can also share mistakes that you've made. I think there's a lot of learning that comes from that as well. That's the first thing. And also just try to get your own financial house in order so that you can be a good financial role model to your kids. And in the book, there's these 11 healthy habits of financial management that I talk about. So trying to get yourself doing some of those things so that you can model good behavior. The second is just to look for these teachable moments in your day-to-day lives to build in a money lesson. The book can help you figure out what to say if you're not 100% sure. Let's say if it's about a tax-free savings account or an RSP, something technical. But I think parents also don't give themselves enough credit. They probably know more than they think they do about some of the more basic things. So just look for some of those teachable moments Again, using your values. All parents can do that. You know, once they do some work to really understand what their values are, then making more of an effort to instill values in their kids and talk about them and use them to guide and prioritize decisions and and set goals. You know, something that I really felt, and this is just expanding on what you said, but when I was reading this, it really reminded me of when I started reading my kids' Dr. Seuss books. What I mean by that is that specifically the book Places by Dr. Seuss. So I'm reading this to my kid and I'm like, wow, the places you'll go. And like, I'm starting to like apply it to myself. And I got that same sentiment when I'm reading your book is that overall, this is geared towards the kids, how to teach your kids about money. But I feel like as parents, as you read this, you're going to learn so much about yourself, to your point, how much you already know about money, but also all these little technical things that you're teaching in the five to nine section or the other sections, they apply to us too, you know, as adults. So I really felt like it was a dual beneficiary. Like the parents are going to go through this journey and learn and then also equip them to talk to your, to the kids. I don't know if that was intentional, but I really felt like that was something that I learned. Maybe you could touch on that. Was that an intention? It was because I did feel that from focus groups that we had done in the first book, it showed that parents really were struggling. Um, There was a study that showed that 78% of parents had tried to teach their kids about money, but more than two thirds didn't feel they'd be successful and more than half didn't know what information they needed. So I knew that parents were having trouble with this themselves. And also it is a fundamental thing that builds on itself, financial literacy, It is building blocks. You do start with the basics and then you build and you build. As I said before, making sure it's age appropriate, but going back to first principles and to basics as a parent yourself, as you're teaching your young kid, it's just a good review is kind of the way I look at it. So I did feel that parents would be learning with their kids, whether it was a review or in some cases, it was really learning it properly for the first time. That idea of learning from your kids and you talked about your children you learned from... What do you think one of the most surprising things about money you've learned from your kids? So when I was in university, I learned a lot about modern portfolio theory and the efficient market hypothesis and how all known information was baked into market prices. And there really wasn't a lot about behavioral finance or behavioral economics being taught at that time. I mean, this is, I graduated a long time ago in the late 80s from university. So What I find so interesting is how much, like my son is aware of the psychology behind investor behavior and behind financial behavior. So he would never assume that investors were rational. To him, it was like, of course, a lot of 
market pricing is going to be determined by just forces of supply and demand, which could be created by Reddit or whatever. You know how Warren Buffett talks about Mr. Market, how irrational Mr. Market is. One day everything's on sale, prices are down, and the next day everyone's buying and prices are up. So like to my son, that was completely, of course, that's the way it is. Whereas I was taught, no, 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 it's modern portfolio theory and efficiencies and all that. So that's been a really interesting difference of opinion that we we came in with. And I don't know if it was my generation or my education, but I love behavioral economics. I think it does shed so much light on what actually happens in markets. I feel like it gives us a lot more compassion to the decisions we make because like why am I not behaving like a modern portfolio yeah and and understanding yourself your personality too that's another interesting aspect of personal finance and investing is how much of your own personality your hardwired characteristics like conscientiousness or agreeableness or neuroticism how much of that is coming into play when you're making financial and, and investing decisions and that also speaks to the importance of knowing yourself. So are you someone that is not reactive and will hold the course? Or are you somebody that's going to panic in a market downturn like we had at the beginning of the COVID pandemic? So that kind of stuff, my son had studied some psychology at Queens. So he was more familiar with that stuff and found that really interesting. Whereas that was really new to me, thinking about how that could apply to the way I behave with money. Yeah, what a great dynamic that you're explaining here is going through this journey with your kids and these new ideas that can be generated on both sides. I think it's such a great journey that both the parents and the children can go through. You talked about the teachable moments, and I like how throughout the book, you call them family discussion points. And one of the 11 healthy habits was in line to what we're talking about by understanding yourself, but it was understanding what is a need versus a want you talk about. Maybe touch on what you've learned about the more you've had these conversations about your son on the psychology side of knowing yourself. How, if at all, has that influenced your needs and wants? Yeah, so needs are the must-haves for survival, like shelter and nutritious food and basic clothes to wear. And the wants are like the nice-to-haves a lot of the things we didn't have during the pandemic are still, you know, are just starting to have again, like vacations and travel and eating out and entertainment and Springsteen concerts. I was just thinking like, that might be a need. (laughs) So being aware of the difference, I feel like the pandemic was like such a almost perfect experiment in really living the difference between needs and wants. So most people, they still had to cover their needs. And at the beginning of COVID, everyone was like focused on, okay, I want to make sure I don't know. This is so uncertain. I want to make sure I have enough money for my needs. Cut back on the wants. Then a lot of the wants just weren't even available. So many people, as you know, have been able, if they were continuing to work, have been able to save a lot. Record savings levels in Canada and I'm sure the U.S. as well. So it really became very apparent what the differences were. For example, I used the TD MySpan app and, and it's like a tracking and budgeting tool. And it actually breaks down my expenses when it categorizes them into needs and wants. So I, I often do look at them that way, but I feel like the pandemic was like the perfect experiment for that. And I think for kids too, it was a time to learn about what do I really need and what can I live without? And if I have to cut back again, what's in line with my values that I can let go of and where can I save money? I mean, I feel like people's financial habits changed a lot during the pandemic. My son is actually a pretty low wants kind of person in the first place. He doesn't have high levels of extras that he needs. Even his needs are pretty basic. He's kind of content with what he has. He doesn't really have FOMO or any of that stuff. So For him, I don't think there was huge differences in his lifestyle. I mean, obviously he wasn't going out and doing as much, but I think you have to kind of know yourself. Some people have bigger lifestyles than other people. Mm -hmm. They just do, you know, and it's kind of, again, hardwired. Like, what are you really all about? Like, do you love to travel and go out and do things? Or are you more like happy to read and do more solitary things? So, Out of curiosity, what's your daughter's personality like when it comes to needs and wants? Definitely likes more of the nice things and has more wants. And she just seems more like plugged in to sort of 
what other people are up to and have and do. And she just, she has a more stable job. Yeah, very different lifestyles. Her and her boyfriend just got a dog. So it's not inexpensive to be a pet owner, but a great thing to do, I think. So she's definitely different in terms of what she enjoys. And she definitely likes her creature comforts and some of her fancier things. It's so interesting how children, their personalities are so vastly different when you're a parent. Right? (laughs) How much of us as parents, and to use some words you, you talk about in the book is lead by example. How much as parents should we lead by example of just letting are embracing our children's personality. So like, we might be like, okay, you need to save, you need to be focused. Here's my needs and wants, those should be yours. What would you say to the parent on the terms of embracing the individual personalities of our children and how, if at all, could that benefit their journey with money? That's such an insightful question because like you said, you really see the differences in the hardwired personalities if you have kids, even though they're raised in the same household, assuming they come from the same two parents, they can still be vastly different. I think you always have to meet people where they are. And for sure with your kids, you can mitigate certain weaknesses when it comes to, let's say, personality and money. So if you're not conscientious and you know that you may have a hard time saving, then you can mitigate that by setting up an automatic transfer to a savings or investment account. I think actually most people should do that, even if they are conscientious, because it just takes the self-discipline out of the process and make sure it happens. But I think specifically, if you know someone is not conscientious, or another example would be if they're more volatile and you know they're going to be reactive in the markets, you want to do things to mitigate that. Maybe they need to work with an advisor or, or even an accountability buddy. So I think you have to know your kid's personality and work within that. Now, some kids may be natural savers, whereas others may want to spend more. So maybe you need to encourage the spending kid about the importance of saving more than you would need to encourage the, the naturally saving kid. Maybe that kid needs to like loosen up a bit and have more fun. And again, it all goes back to your personality and your values. So if you can tie it back to that. I feel like it'll be compelling and motivating, but I think you can never fight against someone's natural personality and try to change them. I'm sure like I've lived long enough to know that it's just not going to happen. Do you have two kids or one? Sean? I have two kids. Yeah. Are they different? They're very different. I'm a very high energy loving. I'm using the word wild five-year-old boy. And then the video kid, that was the kid. in the Yeah. The, the Springsteen. And then uh, a two-year-old who's a little more docile and cautious. Girl or boy? A girl. Interesting. So you'll probably see those personality traits emerge more as they get older. Again, there's some things that are kind of immutable that you see emerge when they're young and they tend to remain that way. I do think people can change too, but I also do believe that you are who you are. And that's beautiful because we're all different. We all have this incredibly cool, unique combination of personality traits. And so it makes the world unique. I got that sentiment from the book. And even when you're going through the stages that you believe in this helping others on their schedule, so to speak, and not theirs. And I think that was important to really highlight that. I I felt like it was coming through in the book. Mm -hmm. Good. My last question before I have a final question to ask everyone, but the last question pertaining to the book is you talk a lot about helping parents and children in a cashless world. I mean, I'm only 36 when I'm saying this about cash or a cashless world. Is it? It's newer to me. And let alone people who might have like 18, 20 year old children. This idea of a cashless world, what influenced you to put that in there? And how do you think it can help the readers and their children and their money journeys? I felt like one of the biggest changes other than the pandemic from 10 years ago when I first wrote the book to now when I felt needed to be updated was this movement away from cash towards a more digital world. When I was going through the original book, it just struck me how many things we're no longer doing. Checks hardly ever get used or written anymore. And that was a little section that I had before. There's just so many more ways that we're interacting with money in a cashless digital way. And to make the book practical and helpful, I felt that really needed to be addressed. With cash, cash is so tangible and concrete. So I still feel like for younger kids, it's really the best place to start is with bills and coins. 
teaching them about debit cards and credit cards and tapping with your phone is just too conceptual until they're a little bit older, preteens. So the other thing about cash and, you know, going back to behavioral economics is that when you part with cash and hand it over, there is like a visceral sense of loss. Like you actually feel like you've spent money. Whereas when you're tapping and you're, you know, just kind of charging away, it doesn't feel the same. You don't always have that same feeling that you've spent money. I can tell you when I buy something with my face recognition, it does not feel like I paid for anything. Like when you just scan your phone? Yeah, it's like buying an audiobook. They're like, or like even when I buy it on my phone audiobook, it like looks at my face and they're like bought. Yeah, and there's no way. <laughs> really? I bought it? Different ways. So like, exactly. Like there's in-app purchases and then there's like your mobile wallet and then there's your plastics. So there's so many different ways. PayPal, like all these different things. And it's so easy in a way to lose track of how much you spent. And in the old days, we used to teach people do jars and have, you know, your different jars for your different budget categories, but that's not very practical anymore. So that's what I was saying to myself. Like, am I, am I really going to teach my kids about money using like jars and envelopes if I'm a parent right now? No, you're not because your kids are going to be on their phones all the time. I mean, they're going to be using mobile banking and there's great tools built into those things now. So why not? Take advantage of those tools to make your life easier. Like before, remember how hard it was to like, if you wanted to keep track of your spending, you had to do it manually or create your own spreadsheet or, you know, a lot of people use Mint, but now all the banks have that built into their mobile banking app. So why not leverage that and use that and get notifications when you've spent money or you're approaching a budget for a certain category of spending? And I felt like it was important because kids are going to be doing that anyway. So they might as well learn some good habits, learn how to use these tools and not be in denial that they're in this digital world now. Yeah, that's a good, great point. Just even saying in denial, because I hear people talk about like, I'm not going to use the bank app. I'm not going to use this. I'm old school. I'm going to use a spreadsheet. But I like how you bring it in that, hey, your kids are going to be doing this. So you might want to understand how it works so you can help them. For some people, the spreadsheet still might work or the pen and paper. I'm not being dismissive of that. I just feel like for most of us, we may not get around to doing that. If there's already a tool that's kind of doing it for you in the background, why not learn how to use it? If they're all pretty intuitive, especially for our kids. And you'd be surprised at how much information you can get and how much control you can feel you have over your finances, even when it's no longer cash slipping through our fingers. Well, thank you so much for the conversation. I have one last question, then I'll let you talk about your website, where people can get your book and anything else you want to talk about. My final question is, let's imagine that you hop in a time machine and you go out to age 95. Maybe you're still in Toronto. Maybe you're at a Springsteen concert, wherever you're most at peace with. And you're on this front porch and you're looking out at whatever you're looking at that makes you feel relaxed and your life's coming to an end. And you decide to write a letter to your children's children. And the main theme of the letter is to impart your wisdom on what you learned on how to have a healthy relationship with money. What would be in that letter? What I'd hope is that my grandchildren would continue to be good stewards of wealth and any wealth that they've inherited or created, they would treat that with respect remember where some of it came from. Again, for them, it would be like great, great grandparents, or if they've worked hard to build it themselves and they know what it takes, you know, money is a finite resource and we need to treat it that way. I would also really hope that they're living their values because when, when you live your values, everything has purpose, including money. So I would really hope that they are using money to live a better lives themselves to live within their community in a way that gives back and that community-minded and that they're also going to prepare their own children and grandchildren. Like I would love this legacy to be that every generation makes the wisest investment. So I made it. I hope my kids will make it and their kids and that their kids will make it and, you know, and so on down the line that the wisest investment will continue throughout our family. Wow. And it sounds like your grandparents, when you talked about them coming over to Canada, they made an investment, the wisest investment, and you're just continuing on. And exactly. And compounding, right? It will hopefully compound on itself. Yeah. Who knows? The world will look really different, I'm sure, for my 
grandchildren or great-grandchildren. That's for sure. Like the speed of innovation and fintech and all the changes we've seen, who knows what the world will be like for them, like decentralized finance, all these things, cryptocurrencies, the blockchain, those things are going to make that world be so different than our world. So I just hope that they continue to learn and train and have the skills that they'll need to do well and thrive in that world. Well, I really appreciate you coming on, sharing your story, sharing your book. Where can people find you on the internet and where can they find your book? So the book is available as a physical book and an ebook on Amazon, Amazon Canada. And then if you're in the US, if you're listening from the US, it's on Amazon, amazon.com. I'm hoping to record an audiobook soon. And I have a website called thewisestinvestment.com that has links to the book. It will have a link to this podcast, all types of resources. It will also allow you to see that values validator that we spoke about. So um, it will pop up if you just share your name and email, you can get a copy of the values validator for free. So if you're interested in discovering what your values are and starting to use those in your personal financial life, you can do that. I also have another website called robintoe.com. And that's my original website. It will have more information about my speaking and some of the other things that I'm involved in. But right now, my focus really is the book. If you do pick it up, I'd love to hear how you're making the wisest investment with your family and any feedback that you have on this topic. It's so interesting to hear from parents and what they've experienced with their own. Well, thank you. And I really enjoyed reading it. So I highly recommend the book. And I'll put all the links in the show notes. But once again, thank you for your time. It's a finite our time. So I appreciate you sharing it with us today. Thank you so much, Sean. I really appreciate being here. Thank you so much. Her book is really great. I really suggest you go grab a copy of her book as it has wonderful insight that is age appropriate for all your kids' age. Also, we know things are opening up. Concerts are coming around. In fact, Springsteen has already announced he will be back in New York playing his Broadway show. If you want to go to that concert, I highly recommend it. If he announces a tour with the E Street Band, you gotta go. Either or, Springsteen Broadway or see the E Street Band, you gotta go. I promise you, it may be the best thing you've ever spent your money on. Well, maybe not the best thing ever, but you will enjoy that experience. Until next time, have a good week.